encourage one another this morning. And thanking Jesus for the blood that, that he shed for us on the cross.
may be seated. Pastor Rick, if you'll come up and we'll pray. Good morning. It's time to pray. Anyway, yesterday we had our last day of upward basketball, and um, man, my first game was over here in the, the big gym. And we had our, man, we were winning 14 to 0 at halftime. We were doing so good. Uh, but then we lost in the second half. <laughs> 24 to 23. Doggone it. But the kids had a great time. Just the coach was in tears at the end. No. <laughs> Let's pray. Let's pray for our, our brothers and sisters in Christ over in uh, Ukraine. Pray that they'd have a strong testimony and reach many for Christ. And we'll just uphold them in prayer. That's what we need to do. Pray for missionaries that are also there. Um, serving, serving the Lord. May they be a, um, a strong witness for Christ during this time. Father, thank you for our upward basketball time, first of all. Uh, what a blessing it was to have another season and uh, to spend time with these kids and uh, share the gospel. We're just uh, so, so grateful to you for all that you've done for us. And Lord, just continue to use that program for your glory in the future. Father, now as we look to missions around the world, we pray for those in Ukraine, pastors and missionaries, brothers and sisters in Christ, churches throughout the land. Uh, many of them maybe even left the country. Uh, but Father, I pray that they'd have a strong witness for you. Pray that your name would be glorified through the situation over there, that your church would rise up and uh, be a blessing to those around them. Help them to find ways to share truth and wisdom. Love above all things, um, Lord, because love goes a long ways. And thank you for your love for us. Help us to be always looking for opportunities to share the gospel of Christ with the unsaved. Our world is lost, Lord. Just use us as you will. And give us uh, a great desire to be used for you while we still have time. We love you and thank you for our church. Thank you for Pastor Mike. Help him uh, to deliver the message today through the power of the Holy Spirit. May you get all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. And thanks, Pastor. Stand if you would and we'll sing again this morning. Last week in the sermon, there was uh, Pastor Mike preached through the lists of the things that happen to us when we walk in the flesh, these, these sins that the world just lives in. And I know if, maybe it was the same way for you that as we heard the list, it's like, oh, that's not me, that's not me. And then, oh, that's me. That's something that I struggle with. And, and uh, so let's read this passage together in light of that list and, and the things that we don't have to struggle with anymore. In... Uh, Romans 7, let's read this together. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, 
in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. It is sweet to be set free in the Spirit, to be released from those deeds of the flesh which are so destructive to us. Let's rejoice this morning.
slave to the darkness if it wasn't for the cross Jesus, I was a prisoner, now I'm not, and with your blood you bought my freedom, hallelujah, for the cross,
Thank you, Jesus. I was a prisoner. Now I'm not. With your blood, you bought my freedom. Hallelujah for the cross. Amen. It's sweet to sing with you, my brothers and sisters. Be seated. All right, kids, third grade and under, and head to super church if they'd like to. Well, good morning. It's good to be here this morning. I'm glad you're here. It's been a blessed weekend. I want to make sure I say thank you to all the people that served at Upward and had a great day yesterday. Really blessed to share the gospel, just share the gospel. Um, thankful for Max and Rick and Aaron that shared the gospel yesterday. It's it's an amazing thing to stand in front of a bunch of people you don't know, really, and, and just realize that it's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that God can do anything, right? We were in here listening to Max share and listening to Rick share and is in the small gym listening to Aaron share and just how true the gospel is and yet how dependent we are on God to do something in there. And to watch God work in people's lives and to watch just the Spirit kind of bring about a a peaceful, powerful presence in the middle of a basketball game. Man, we have a good God, powerful God. I hope you're praying for that. I hope you're praying for those people, those children, their parents, their grandparents, that they would come to know Christ. I mean, yesterday between us and Boyd, uh, Boyd Avenue Baptist Church who joined us this year, uh, easily a thousand people heard the gospel yesterday, easily. But there's just 60,000 60, in our city area alone, right? Still got a little work to do. Let's pray about that. Anyway, take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 26. We've just finished talking about the Holy Spirit. Hopefully some things that, you know, really grab your heart about who Christ is in us. About the fact that when we are saved, that the Holy Spirit comes and lives in us and is with us and changes us and blesses us and equips us and secures us and provides it for us and protects us and on and on and on and on, right? What a blessed people we are. And yet we all, we know that it all comes through Christ. And, you know, here we are talking about or singing about hallelujah for the cross. And, you know, I, I hope that literally we'll take some time as we prepare to celebrate Christ's death and burial and resurrection, to really think about that. I mean, to really think about what it means to have a God who gave his son, to have a savior who gave his life, to think about what that actually means. What does it mean to you to have Christ in your life? What is your response to Christ in your life? How does that impact every day? How does that impact the trials in your life? How does that impact the blessings in your life? How does it impact the mundane daily activity of life? How does Christ and his salvation just sustain us, bless us, fill us, and again, empower us to live in a way that we couldn't without him? Man, he's, he's so good. Matthew 26, we'll begin in verse 1. When Jesus had finished all these words, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. 
Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, named Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out thirty pieces of silver. From then on, he began looking for an opportunity, a good opportunity, to betray Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is good to be here today. It is good to be able to sing for your glory, to think on who you are as Savior, what you've done for us on the cross, how that impacts us and what blessings and what joy that brings to us. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would now, by the power of your Spirit, open our hearts to your word. We each need to hear from you, each in our own place. Some, they've not come to know you. They don't know who you are and how you love them, what you've done for them. They don't know what it means to be forgiven, to be made a child of God. They don't know the blessings and the power of the intimate relationship we can have with you, Father. And I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. Others of us, Lord God, know you. We have trials or sickness or fears or anxieties. Some of us, Lord, are here and we're blessed. We're thankful. We have peace in our life. But each one of us, Lord, we pray you'd speak. Pray that you'd grow us. Pray that you would point us in the direction we need to be living for you and correct us where we're wrong. I just pray you'll, you'll move for your glory and I give you thanks, Man, What a Lord. great, great Amen. song. This is a, Man, an interesting sing. little passage of Scripture. It's an interesting songs. time in Christ's life. But you know, we, if you would go back to chapter 24 and chapter song, 25, right? you would realize that Jesus, Jesus is speaking is about some more very intense things. He's, he's literally speaking him, about the destruction of, of Jerusalem. He's speaking and about you know, the time of judgment that and the true. end times that are to come. Man, he's speaking really about his that second true. coming. I mean, he is but you know, speaking it's, it's easy to highly powerful things and, and not to his believers. And, and literally, as we way, get down to the cross, we know sing. that that's a, when that time begins. It, it is cheap to sing. Right? The end times start you when know, Christ dies and is resurrected from the dead. And we live in them now, which is kind of a strange thing. There's all kinds of things to come. There's all kinds of things that have been. But the intensity of what's going to happen... Because of Christ when Jesus when in this world, should God, never be missed. You should you never miss the judgment and the destruction that comes because of rejecting Sometimes Jesus Christ. And you should never miss the every glory kind of and the power of salvation that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Jesus he finishes chapter 25 Lord by talking about at the end time when he's going to separate he is the sheep whether we want from him the goats. 
He's talking about he's separating not asking those us to that make truly him know him right? and he's love Lord. him from those that truly and, don't. And, and he talks about that there's evidence in the way good. we live our lives and how we as much as our rebellious hearts that we are true followers of Jesus think it's Christ. Good. It's but the crazy thing good is, is when he finishes chapter a Lord 25, who loves he us. talks about the true yet, followers man, we struggle. will inherit the kingdom, we struggle. which has been prepared for them We've been talking about the, the foundation Spirit, of the world. There's thought. so many profound I mean, God has been working in this world from the about beginning. the Holy Spirit. And he's still working. They're, they're profound. And I don't know about you, but that gives uh, me they great are, joy and great should peace be to know life that he's changing. They the should be the world, life right? rocking. But then he talks uh, about the They should be giving us both hope and, how and encouragement. They will and depart com- from him into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Man, if you think Jesus Christ is not intense... And if you think Jesus Christ doesn't speak truth, oftentimes when we don't even like it or care to hear it, you'd be mistaken. He's intense. And this is an intense time. I mean, he transitions from that conversation about the destruction of Jerusalem, the end times and his second coming and the, and the final judgment. He transitions from that as he looks to his disciples and he says, he said to his disciples, verse two, you know, that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Man, of all the things that he has talked about and all the intensity that he shared with these men and how heavy that must be and how many questions they must have had, for him to look at them and say, in two days I'm going to be turned over to wicked men to be crucified. Now, This isn't the first time that Jesus has said that. He said it several times. He's told them several times. Matter of fact, we can look back at a couple of passages. Matthew 16, 21 says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Then again in Matthew 20, 17 through 19, it says, as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves and on the way he said to them, behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death, hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify. And on the third day, he'll be raised up. I mean, it's It's crazy. So this is at least the third time recorded in the gospel of Matthew that Jesus says, I know what's coming. I know what's going to happen. I know what has to happen. I'm actually going to be turned over to wicked, vile, sinful, rebellious, God-hating men, and they're going to kill me. You, but that's a little shocking. I mean, sometimes read your Bibles like it's actually written. Read your Bibles for what it actually says. I know we live in a world where we deny evil, we deny wickedness, we we deny hate. You know, people aren't that bad. They're really nice. Don't talk about them like they're that bad. But you're talking about killing the Son of God. You're talking about killing brutally a sinless man. You're talking about defiling and denying 
a man who did nothing but love, who raised the dead, who made the lame to walk, who made the blind to, to see, the deaf to hear, the mute to speak, who would reach out and touch the lowlies of lowlies as he would touch a leper and cleanse them from their uncleanness because he was pure and could cleanse them. You're talking about the one that was filled with grace and love who left heaven for the purpose of saving us. He said, I know in two days these wicked, rebellious, God-hating men and women are going to kill me. And some of, uh, of the word needs to really penetrate sometimes because we still live in a world. We still live in a world that hates God and hates Jesus Christ. And quite honestly, if you stand up and live for him, they're going to hate you too. The Bible says so. They persecuted Christ. What makes us think that they won't persecute us? They will. That's not all that this means when he says, I'm going to go in two days. It doesn't just mean that wicked men are going to crucify him. It means that in two days, by his hand, according to God's will, he's going to lay down his life. As shocking as the thought is that wicked men would do something that vile, it's more shocking to realize that Jesus is in control of this thing. I mean, he knew from the beginning that he had come. He had told them several times already that he is going to lay down his life. His whole purpose was to come to the cross to lay down his life so that we could be saved. That we ought to be shocked by God's love. We ought to be shocked by Christ's determination to go to the cross. We ought to be shocked by the fact that he would see us as we are. Man, do you ever just try to look at yourself as you are? I, I know we're great self-deniers. We are. We really are. I, I know, and this is always the, the guy that doesn't want to look at himself as he really is. He's like, well, you know, I've been forgiven, and so I don't really ever think about who I really am. Well, you haven't been forgiven much, if that's you. You want to really know how much you're forgiven. Take a really good look at who you are. You can take a look at who you used to be. You can take a look at who you were yesterday, but look at who you are today. Man, are you tempted to be judgmental? Are you tempted to be lazy? Are you tempted to be selfish? Are you tempted to be rude? Are you tempted to be unforgiving? Oh, I forget. I always forget. We're at College Heights. The answer is no. And then we kind of flash our pearly whites, right? Ding. Come on, think about this. He's saying, I'm purposely going to go be unspeakably abused and mocked and shamed and nailed to a cross and suffer, become your sins, take the punishment you deserve for your sins, and die, and if we can't actually see 
the depth of our own sins, it's not possible to see the depth of his love. We're talking about love. Jesus is saying, I'm gonna go in two days to the cross because my love for you is limitless. It's limitless. I'm gonna love you that you might be saved. Well, then the passage gets a little bit, a little bit interesting because the next verse three, it says, then the chief priests and elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. They plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. And I, I kind of laugh at that. I mean, at some level, I kind of laugh at that. It's not really laughable because these are wicked men. These are the religious leaders of the day. These are the good guys, supposedly, right? These are the guys that walk with God. These are the guys that say they know God. These are the guys that tell you how to know God. These are the guys that, that say to you, if you want to know God, look like me and live like me and think like me. And yet they are, they're, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, but they're full of dead men's bones, right? He called them hypocrites and a brood of vipers. That's who these guys were. And so they're meeting on purpose to plot to kill the Son of God. And it's crazy to me because they're more concerned about their own personal comforts, their own personal influence, their own personal positions, their own personal political influence. I mean, they really are concerned about their glory, about themselves. They're not concerned about God at all. They're not concerned about God's will at all. They're so unconcerned about God and his will that they're going to kill God the Son. It's nuts. But what's even more nuts is that they think they're in control. They think they're in control. Man, we got to do something about this guy. He's really making us look bad. He's really, you know, causing us some problems. People are beginning to exalt him and not exalt us. People are beginning to turn to him and not turn to us. Man, if we're not careful, like we're gonna lose our whole country to this guy. They might actually make him king and then what are we gonna do? And so they think in order to make themselves secure where they are, they're gonna do what many of us do. We start to do a work to make things happen. Get her done, right, Wyoming? Get her done. We can get it done. We can make it happen. We can see things going on. But were they really in control? Well, they weren't in control. Jesus already said two times earlier, God said many times in the Old Testament that Christ was going to come and that he was going to die. I mean, this isn't the first time that God has said, hey, I'm gonna go to the cross. I mean, Jesus knew that from the beginning. And Jesus just said before these guys even met, two days from now, I'm gonna go to the cross. Why? Because God was in the cross. God was in Christ giving his life for us. God was moving even in these wicked men. I, I love to see this stuff. I love to see the foolishness of men do you? Do you like to see the foolishness of, of, of men? Do you like to see the, the man that says, I've made my life into what it is today? Realize, nah, no. Whatever you have, wherever you are, it's by the grace of God. 
even these wicked men, did they have free choice to do this? For sure. But God was in them, moving them, leading them, allowing them the freedom to be whatever they wanted to be, but it was God's purpose to accomplish the salvation of men. Amen. And we need to begin to see the greatness of God. We need to begin to see it. I know we live in a world where there's a lot of wickedness. There's a ton of wickedness, don't you think? I mean, it's not just in the Ukraine. That's pretty wicked. There's not just wickedness in Russia. Pretty wicked. We, we could go through some pretty crazy places. We could talk about North Korea. Pretty wicked. We could talk about Somalia. Somalia is a pretty wicked place. We could talk about, I could go on and on to talk about some pretty wicked places, but how about the U.S.? It's a pretty wicked place. It's a godless nation. It's godless. Uh, no, no matter how you shake it out, we are a godless nation. The only God-fearing people are those who are born again. The only ones. There is no others. And we're a minority. We've always been a minority. We're always going to probably be a minority. Without the power of God doing something extreme, it's minority. But does this wickedness mean that God's not in this world? Does it mean that God's not moving in Russia or China or in Ukraine? Does it mean that God's not moving in the U.S.? Does it mean that? No, not even a chance. I mean, we're living in one of the craziest times I've ever seen among believers where we're despairing when we see wickedness to the place where we don't know where to turn because we don't know God. We don't know God. Just because wickedness is taking place, all of a sudden we decide that God's not there? Was God in the most wicked act mankind has ever performed? He was in it. Because there's nothing more wicked than evil men crucifying the king of glory. Nothing. Nothing has been more evil ever and nothing will ever be more evil than men killing the Son of God. But he was in it. So can we not learn to turn to him? I mean, that's a, that's a legitimate question today. I mean, there's so many of us that are sitting in this room and we go, so much evil, where's God. Well, the only reason evil still exists is because God has been patient and merciful and waiting that men and women might be saved. He's enduringly patient that men and women might be saved. That's what it tells us in Second Peter, right? God is not slow as some count slowness, but is patient, not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, Right? God's in this world and turning to him is the only way for us to really have life. And so many that claim Christ today, they're shriveling on the vine. They're shriveling up because they won't see him. They won't turn to him. Well, let's look at this lady because this is pretty fantastic. 
I mean, it's an interesting just passage that was written with these combinations of activities. Man, we, we see Jesus saying, I'm going to be crucified. We see the chief priests, man, they're plotting to kill him. And then we see this woman. You know, verse 6, now when Jesus was at Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. And so we see this kind of contrasting thing, right? I mean, the first thing is we see him at a place called Simon the leper's house. We don't really know anything about Simon. He's not really mentioned anywhere else, but apparently he had been a leper. If he was still a leper, he'd be living outside of town and you wouldn't be going to his house. So he must have been cured. So many people assumed that he was cured by Jesus, and that's why Jesus was there. Can't really prove that, but we can assume that, all right? Pretty cool place to be two days before his death, two miles from Jerusalem. This is close. I mean, this is all happening very close. And all we know is that this woman comes in with this alabaster jar of very costly perfume. We find out from John it was worth 300 denarii. That's about a year's wages, a year's wages in this alabaster jar. And she opens it and she pours the whole thing over his head and it runs down off his head and onto his robe and maybe even on the floor. If you read about the extremely expensive perfume, you know that they made it out of the purest parts. There was no roots involved. It was the leaves that smelled the best and they would grind it all down. It was just super pure. And literally it would have been this extravagant smell. I mean, if you have troubles with smells, it would have ruined your day. But if you enjoy smelly things, you would have been like, whoa. I mean, no kidding, it would have smelled glorious. It probably would have floated out into the streets, you know? I mean, this was an incredible, extravagant offering of worship. And in fact, I believe it's one of the most beautiful acts of worship given toward Jesus in the New Testament. I mean, this woman, we don't really know anything about her. She's unnamed. But we do know this, that she came and she sold out to worship Jesus. She sold out. You weren't going to go unnoticed by opening your perfume. I can remember the first time I went to Bulgaria. Bulgaria is known for roses. And so they have these little vials of rose oil that you can buy. And they come in these kind of cool little Bulgarian containers, you know. And, and man, it was just a great smell. So I bring some home for Beth, but I'll never forget. We opened that little vial and pulled the cork on it. And our house smelled like roses right away. It was like, whoo, roses. Well, she knew before she opened that, that alabaster jar that this smell was going to be intense. And so she's in the middle of a room with Jesus and his disciples and she's basically selling out. I'm going to worship you and everybody's gonna know it. As far as we can tell, it was pure. It was loving. It was humble. It was exalting. It was pleasing. But the disciples, they're like, man, 
What a waste. Any pragmatic people in here? <laughs> I mean, you're really practical. You're tight. You're cheap. You're whatever. You can kind of understand this maybe. I mean, we don't really know why they said that to some degree. It says that the disciples, plural, were wondering why it wasn't spent to help the poor. So maybe some of them had impure hearts and that maybe they were a little self-righteous. They're like, oh, you think you're something for coming to worship Jesus like this. And, but maybe not. I don't really know. Maybe some of them had pure hearts and they knew Jesus loved the poor. And they were serious, man. Why didn't we use this to help the poor? Why didn't you pour a couple of drops on? That would have worked. <laughs> Careful. Careful. We know this. We know that one that didn't have a pure heart, over in John 12, 4 through 6, it says, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Either way, we have this interesting kind of contrasting response to this worship, right? On the one hand, the woman was just worshiping. Think about this now. What kind of heart did she have toward Jesus or for Jesus would cause her to worship so extravagantly? What kind of value did she esteem Christ with in order to worship so extravagantly? What kind of selfless humility does it take to point everything to such high extent towards Christ where you are really pushed out of the scene by his great value? I mean, this woman's heart, man, she loved Jesus. She didn't care if anybody else knew. She didn't care what they thought. She loved him. But what's kind of shocking is Jesus' response. In verse 10, but Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why do you bother the woman? For she's done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I find that to be fairly interesting I mean, first he says to them, why do you bother the woman? You guys are missing what's happening here. Man, this should not be questioned by what she's doing. And then he says, you always have the poor with you, but you won't always have me. And some people actually say, well, that was kind of offensive, you know, kind of selfish, kind of self-centered. But it wasn't that at all. We know Jesus loves the poor. We know. I mean, no one loved the down and out more than Jesus. No one loved the needy more than Jesus. God is the father of the fatherless and the husband for the widow. I mean, he is the one that champions the poor and the needy unlike anybody else. He loves them. He cares for them. There's no question about that. What he's saying is, you're going to have plenty of opportunities to continue to minister to the poor. You should but you don't have many more opportunities to minister to me. I'm going to be gone. 
And you're not going to have that chance to have me in your presence anymore. But what's really, what's really shocking to me is he says, she did a good deed to me. He doesn't say she's worshipped me. He could have. Jesus didn't make a mistake about what he was saying. He wasn't obscure about what he was meaning. She'd done a good deed to me, is what he says. And, and then he explains it. He says, for when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Now that's a really interesting question or statement because the Jewish tradition, which they did to Jesus' body after he was taken from the cross, was to take them down and wrap them in certain spices and things that would semi-preserve them and help them from stinking, if you will. He's not talking about that. He's not talking about this thing anointing him for his burial after the fact. He's talking about her anointing him for his burial beforehand. I want you to think about that for a minute because, I mean, Jesus is two days away from the cross. We've talked about it a little bit already. He's about to be betrayed, defiled, mistreated, abused. He's about to be scorned. He's about to have his disciples flee from him and Peter deny him. He's about to hear a crowd cry out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. He's about to feel the cat of nine tails stripping the flesh from his back. He's about to have a crown of thorns beat on his head while the soldiers mock and mock him as king. He's about to feel nails slice through his flesh, pierce into a wood, be hoisted up into a spot where the cross crashes down with him on it. He's about to go through the most humiliating, degrading, despicable suffering that any man has ever known. And if that weren't enough, far greater yet, he's about to become the sin of the world. And he's about to experience the wrath of God that is poured out upon him for our salvation. He's even going to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? While the Father turned his face from him as he becomes our sin. It was shameful. Anyone hung on a cross was considered to be a curse. Scripture says so. The Son of God, the Holy One, the Righteous One was going to be considered shameful. It's hard to even consider. But Jesus says of this woman, she's done a good deed to me. She's prepared my body for burial. 
She doesn't see my cross as shameful. She doesn't see my suffering as despicable. She doesn't see my sacrifice as cheap. She doesn't see me as a curse. This woman, whether she fully understood it or not, I don't know that she did, but Jesus did. She might have just simply been loving him and showing him worship. Hallelujah. But Jesus sees it as you have shown the glory of my death. You have shown before I die, prepared my body for burial, and the goodness of what I am and what I'm doing and the holiness of it and the righteousness of it and the love, the depth, the glory. Man, you, what you've done is gonna be spoken of wherever this gospel is spoken till the ends of the age. And we don't know her name, but we know what she did. Do we not? Isn't it amazing to think of what happens when we actually will begin to worship? I mean, this woman, she didn't have the insight or the abilities to fully understand what she was doing, but she did have the insight and the understanding to know who Christ was and how glorious he was, and she wanted to worship him. She didn't have ulterior motives in her worship. All she cared about was to lift Christ up. All she cared about was to show him how much she loved him. All she cared about was him. She wasn't concerned about herself. You don't give a year's salary if you're concerned about yourself. You know you have a savior that cares about you. You know that you're safe in his presence and you know that his love for you is so valuable that you can't do anything but pour out your appreciation and worship to the one who died or is about to die for you. Now worship is this glorious thing Worship comes from a heart that says, I know who Christ is and I know what Christ has done for me and all I want to do is give him glory, glory upon glory. But man, do you realize that when you worship, maybe you're saying something to Christ and to God that you can't comprehend. Maybe from your worship, Again, the king of kings, who although he knows he's God and he's good, here's again, oh man, my sacrifice. Oh yeah, it was worth it. My children, they're worshiping. My shame, it was worth it. Because they're not ashamed of me. My pain, it was worth it because they're set free and they're thanking me. Man, do you not understand what it means to actually just cut loose the extravagant worship? I don't know what extravagant necessarily looks like in your life or my life. Sometimes we're really scared to be extravagant aren't we? Man, I'm not much for displaying publicly some of the things that are going on in my heart as I stand here and cry in front of you. That part just comes out. But man, sometimes even raising my hands, giving him glory, I, I shy away from that. I'm nervous about that. To kneel down, 
to kneel down, to bow before him, to lay on your face before him and tell him, Lord, I can't get any lower, but you need to get higher in my life. To live in such a way that you're understanding the gospel. We talk about Jesus with joy and thanksgiving, even at the cost of friendships or broken relationships. Man, this lady didn't care. She just poured it out. She poured it on him. Matter of fact, because it was such expensive perfume, many experts believe that the smell was still on his garments when he went to the cross. Can you imagine after they put the purple robe on him and beat the crown of thorns in his head and they finally took it off and put his robes back on him before they let him out? Can you imagine him smelling that? Can you preparing his body for burial and letting him know that, yes, it's worth it all. We love you. Man, extravagant worship. He is worthy. Is he not worthy of worship for every ounce of our being? Even if others go, ah, oh, what are you doing? You're a weirdo. Trust me, we're weird without extravagant worship. Well, look at verse 14. Then one of the 12 named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? They weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. I read these passages of scriptures and I'm like, how? In the, how? How is it possible? Same Savior. They're in the same location. The woman's pouring out Basically, her life savings, if you will, upon Jesus in worship. And Jesus is receiving that worship as encouraging and blessing and man, value. And Judas sees it as I am out. I'm going to go find those guys. I'm going to sell him out. I'm going to betray him. And man, I, I don't fully comprehend all that stuff. I really don't. I mean, I, I sat in the games yesterday and I, I purposely tried to just, just look through and pray for people, people everywhere in the, in the room, just pray for them. I don't know many of them, but I can see them and I can pray for them and I can pray for God to move. And, and I realize that, man, some of these people are going to hear this gospel and, and it's going to touch their hearts and some of these people are going to hear this gospel and they're going to get offended. Aaron was telling us this morning that there was a guy while I was speaking that was getting offended and he was kind of slamming his, his hat against his leg like, you know, oh, I didn't even see him. But, you know, you're like, how does it work? Well, I want you to think about it because it's kind of in this passage. Verse 15, it says, Jesus said to the chief priest, what are you willing to give me to betray him to you? In other words, he was far more concerned about money, about the world, about junk. He was willing to sell Jesus out for whatever they were willing to give him. And 30 pieces of silver was about a month's wage. About a month's wage. You were willing to betray the King of glory, the Lord of lords, the one who was to die for you, who loved you unconditionally for 30 pieces of silver for a month's wage. 
And yet the truth be known today is it doesn't matter what the price is. For those that refuse to see Jesus, all they care about is themselves. All they care about is their way. All they care about is their will. And it doesn't matter what the price is. It can be a small price. It could be a big price. But none of it matters because it's just junk. It's just worthless. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Well, gain the world. Have your money, have your big houses, have your fancy cars, have your nice clothes, man, have your influence. Get it all. Might as well, because you lose it all in Christ. You gain nothing. But all the lure of the world, the, the hope of physical security apart from Christ. Man, Judas had walked with him and walked with him and walked with him, yet he couldn't get past the fact that Jesus didn't come to be king, didn't come to make him wealthy, didn't come to make him powerful. He told him, I'm gonna go die. And so many people go, no, I want a savior that's gonna fix everything physical in my life. And if Jesus isn't gonna do that, I'm out. But you see, here's the truth. Throughout scripture, it's always this way. It's either worship or it's betrayal. I know we still try to find a middle ground where we can worship every now and then and yet have the flesh every now and then. There is no middle ground. Jesus said, wide as gate, broad as a path that leads to destruction and many are those who enter in by it and narrow is the gate. Small is the gate, narrow is the path that leads to eternal life and few are those who find it. There's no, there's no compromise. It's not part-time worship and part-time flesh. It's all-time worship and all-time flesh. It's in with Jesus or out with Jesus. I shared yesterday, Deuteronomy chapter 30, where Jesus said, I set before you life and death, blessing and curse. So choose life. That's what So choose life that you may live, you and your descendants. Choose life. I mean, God's desire for us is to choose Christ. That's how we have life. But you can't betray him. You can't deny him. You can't say, I will follow him later. You can't. He came to save you. You've got to worship. Worship is all in. It is. Worship's beautiful. It's powerful. It's glorious. It's life-giving. It's encouraging. It blesses us. It blesses God. But oh my goodness, when we go, ah, I would worship you, but you know, I need this world. So when I get everything I need, I'll worship you, Lord. Guess what you will be? You'll be lost. You'll betray Christ. You'll remain an enemy of God. And you won't be in control of any of your circumstances. Not one. Not one. We have to decide. We have to decide every day. We have to decide multiple times a day. We'll have to decide tomorrow. 
Who are we going to worship? Here's the thing. Worship of Christ comes from the understanding of Christ's love for us. Does Christ love you? If you're saved, he loves you. You should worship him freely. He deserves it. If you're lost, he loves you, but you've never experienced it because you won't. You won't accept it. You can change that today. You can confess Christ as Lord. You can believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the grave and that he did everything you need to do to be saved. You just have to believe him. Won't you do that? Won't you believe him? Find out how good his salvation is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm grateful. I'm grateful beyond words for your love for us. I know, Lord, that I am a sinner and your forgiveness is the most miraculous, gracious, undeserved gift I've ever received, and I love you. I love you. I want to love you more. I want to worship you extravagantly. I want to praise you with my lips. I want to glorify you with my actions. I want to serve you and others because you have served me. And I pray that all of us that know you would pray that prayer, all of us. And I pray, Lord Jesus, for those that don't know you, that they would believe today that you'd reveal the truth about Christ to them, that they would believe and be saved today. Help us respond to what you're saying to us right now. And we'll give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. Let's worship. If you have questions, if you would like us to pray with you, our pastors will be down front. We would love to do that.